personalities that made that long decade a synonym for excess and moral breakdown. Above all, the Long March aims to show how the paroxysms of the 1960s continue to reverberate throughout our culture. The age of Aquarius did not end when the last electric guitar was unplugged at Woodstock. It lives on in our values and habits, in our tastes, pleasures, and aspirations. It lives on especially in our educational and cultural institutions, and in the degraded pop culture that permeates our lives like a corrosive fog. Looking afresh at the architects of America's cultural revolution, the Long March provides a series of cautionary tales, an annotated guidebook of wrong turns, dead ends, and unacknowledged spiritual hazards. What is most obvious is often the easiest to overlook. To a casual observer, Phineas Gage might have appeared almost normal. So it is with our culture. Such blindness is a common byproduct of cultural and moral upheaval. In his book on the Ancien Régime and the French Revolution, 1856, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that great revolutions which succeed make the causes which produce them disappear, and thus become incomprehensible because of their own success. Acceptance breeds invisibility, the ultimate token of triumph. For an American writing at the end of the 1990s, Tocqueville's words fit our current cultural and political situation seamlessly. Although sometimes tempted to ignore it, we are living in the aftermath of a momentous social and moral assault. As David Frum observes in How We Got Here, his new book about the 1970s, we are the heirs of the most total social transformation that the United States has lived through since the coming of industrialism. A transformation, a revolution, that has not ended yet. Even now it is difficult to gauge the extent of that transformation. In 1991, looking back over his long and distinguished career in an essay called A Life of Learning, the philosopher Paul Oscar Christeller sounded a similar melancholy note. We have witnessed, he wrote, what amounts to a cultural revolution, comparable to the one in China, if not worse. And whereas the Chinese have to some extent overcome their cultural revolution, I see many signs that ours is getting worse all the time and no indication that it will be overcome in the foreseeable future. What is a cultural revolution? Revolution, of course, is a strong word, one that covers a multitude of disparate activities and phenomena. And it is well at the outset to note that a cultural revolution is not the same thing as an intellectual or artistic revolution, though the three things often go together. The writings of Copernicus fomented a far-reaching intellectual revolution, as did, for example, the writings of Darwin. The development of one-point perspective in the Renaissance sparked a fertile artistic revolution in Italy and elsewhere. When Virginia Woolf, referring to a London exhibition of post-impressionist painting, organized by her friend and fellow Bloomsbury figure, Roger Fry, wrote that, in or about December 1910, human character changed, all human relations shifted. She was indulging in comic exaggeration. And yet, post-impressionism did mark a revolution in artistic culture, just as the writing of Joyce and Eliot did in literary culture. But a cultural revolution differs from an intellectual or artistic revolution. And it also differs from a political revolution. Though, again, the two sometimes go together. 
A cultural revolution, whatever the political ambitions of its architects, results first of all in a metamorphosis in values and the conduct of life. In this context, it is also worth noting the differences between those political revolutions that aim at establishing a limited constitutional government and those that, notwithstanding the proliferation of slogans about freedom and liberation, actually aim at or result in tyranny. The Glorious Revolution in England in 1688 and the American Revolution at the end of the 18th century are the chief, perhaps the only, examples of the former. The latter, regrettably, are much more common. The French Revolution and the Russian Revolution provide archetypes of actual tyranny, staging a coup under the banner of imagined liberation. As the Marxists say, it is no accident that proponents of cultural revolution overwhelmingly favor the latter. In a democratic society like ours, where free elections are guaranteed, political revolution is almost unthinkable in practical terms. Consequently, utopian efforts to transform society have been channeled into cultural and moral life. In America, scattered if much publicized episodes of violence have wrought far less damage than the moral and intellectual assaults that do not destroy buildings but corrupt sensibilities and blight souls. The success of America's recent cultural revolution can be measured not in toppled governments, but in shattered values. If we often forget what great changes this revolution brought in its wake, that, too, is a sign of its success. Having changed ourselves, we no longer perceive the extent of our transformation. In his reflections on the life of learning, Christler was concerned primarily with the degradation of intellectual standards that this cultural revolution brought about. One sign of our situation, he noted, is the low level of our public and even of our academic discussion. The frequent disregard for facts or evidence or rational discourse and arguments, and even of consistency, is appalling. Who can disagree? As Christeller suggests, however, the intellectual wreckage visited upon our educational institutions and traditions of scholarship is only part of the story. There are also social, political, and moral dimensions to America's cultural revolution. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that the spiritual deformations we have witnessed are global and affect every aspect of life. Writing about America's cultural revolution in the totalitarian temptation, Jean-Francois Revel noted that a revolution is not simply a new political orientation. It works through the depths of society. It writes the play in which political leaders will act much later. The movement for sexual liberation, not to say outright debauchery, occupies a prominent place in the ideology of this revolution, as does the mainstreaming of the drug culture and its attendant pathologies. Indeed, the two are related. Both are expressions of the narcissistic hedonism that was an important ingredient of the counterculture from its development in the 1950s. The Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse was not joking when in Eros and Civilization, one of many inspirational tracks for the movement, he extolled the salvational properties of primary narcissism as an effective protest against the repressive order of procreative sexuality. The images of Orpheus and Narcissus reconcile Eros and Thanatos, Marcuse wrote. 
They recall the experience of a world that is not to be mastered and controlled, but to be liberated. The redemption of pleasure, the halt of time, the absorption of death, silence, sleep, night, paradise. The nirvana principle not as death, but as life. The succeeding decades showed beyond Cavill that the pursuit of the redemption of pleasure, the halt of time, was narcissistic in a far more common sense than Marcuse suggested. It turned out to be a form of death in life, not paradise. But of course, this was something that neither this guru of liberation nor his many followers ever acknowledged, or perhaps even recognized. One of the most conspicuous and conspicuously jejune features of America's cultural revolution has been the union of such hedonism with a species of radical or radical chic politics. This union fostered a situation in which, as the famous slogan put it, the personal is the political. The politics in question was seldom more than a conjuries of radical clichés, serious only in that it helped to disrupt society and blight a good many lives. In that sense, to be sure, it proved to be very serious indeed. Apocalyptic rhetoric notwithstanding, the behavior of the revolutionaries of the counterculture consistently exhibited that most common of bourgeois passions, anti-bourgeois animus, expressed, as always, safely within the swaddling clothes of bourgeois security. As Alan Bloom remarked in the closing of The American Mind, the cultural revolution proved to be so successful on college campuses partly because of the bourgeois need to feel that he is not bourgeois, to have dangerous experiments with the unlimited. Anti-bourgeois ire is the opiate of the last man. It almost goes without saying that, like all narcotics, the opiate of anti-bourgeois ire was both addictive and debilitating.